Well, good morning. I'm glad we're not following the clock today. We're uh, off a little bit, but that's okay. We don't really care, do we? <laughs> uh, I heard, uh, actually, I heard uh, this morning um, this thing about time, and it was uh, dealing with G.K. Chesterton. And there was a guy, you know, that was in England, like in London, what have you. You'll know what I'm talking about, yeah. won't you, Nandor? Anyway, um, uh, he, he was laid out. And along came this guy kind of moving along pretty quick, and he had a grandfather's clock he was carrying along with him. G.K. Chesterton looked up there and said, why don't you wear a wristwatch like everybody else? I didn't get a big laugh on that because, you know, everybody's gone. They're gone today. My lappers are there. I think we better go on to the Word of God right now. We're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. God is a jealous God. Have you ever heard a sermon on the jealousy of God? You have? Well, have you ever read a book on the jealousy of God? <laughs> Was it here? Was it here? Where it... Okay. All right. I can't be sure, you know, but I, I guess probably I, I have. Uh, maybe I have it. I don't know. But uh, what's your take on the subject? Isn't that interesting? God is a jealous God. A jealous God. It just doesn't seem to ring right, does it? Ah, oh, he's just jealous. You know that, that. You know that's the way that we take it a, in a, a worldly way. God, but God is a jealous God, and uh, we don't seem to think of Him that way. But actually, it's one of the attributes of God. It's a great attribute of God, the jealousy of Him. And I know we don't try to think of Him in that way. Our culture has its own definition, and and sometimes the culture wants to shape our definitions of terms, doesn't it? Um, you know what the modern world would would teach about jealousy is that it's a monster. And uh, it's a petty, pathetic, uh, vindictive emotion that uh, smacks of some kind of control over people, and and uh, they want to possess the will of another. Uh, you know, we can hear this phrase, the jealousy of God, and we could be amiss if we ask the question: This well, if God is perfectly good, how can He be jealous? He's a perfectly good God. How can He be jealous? So most people take the jealousy as a sense of being. A bad thing, and there can be, and most often there is a bad jealousy, and and that can be a monster, um, the way that the culture would see it anyway. Uh, there's a definition of it in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. You ready for this one? It's like a paragraph. It spoke about the psychology of jealousy. So here we go. I'll just read this, okay? Psychologically, jealous people are filled with tension and conflict. The jealous person is always an angry person who is filled with self-pity. For the jealous person, both his past and his future seem empty, and the desire to cut other people down to his own size becomes intense. The jealous person responds defensively and is easily irritated. He develops a hypersensitivity toward everyone and interprets both the deeds and conversations of others in the most negative light possible. It has been found that jealousy is basic to all character disorders. And so, you know, in, in some senses, a lot of that we would agree with. And that, that is a bad jealousy, and that does exist, and that's the way it appears uh, much of the time. Yet jealousy can be good for us. So here we have that different twist. If we just came along and said something's bad and, and we leave it with that, then uh, then what would be the use of this message? <laughs> so we have to look at, at uh, the good jealousy, which is obviously it's going to come from God. Uh, there's, a, there's a good jealousy when a husband discovers another man that's trying to steal his wife's affections. That would be a good jealousy, wouldn't it? 
Uh, yeah, he should be. That's a justifiable jealous, a good jealousy. Uh, you know, he shouldn't have his wife be taken by another. It's a jealousy for uh, another person. It's for them. Whereas a bad jealousy is a sin, uh, and it's an inward jealousy. Uh, you're jealous of another person. Okay. The, the negative is jealousy of. The positive is jealousy for that person. Uh, hopefully that will help a little bit. One is uh, selfless. That would be the good jealousy. And selfish, which is what we dealt with a lot last week, would be the bad jealousy, wouldn't it? So positive jealousy is a zeal for what is right. Was Jesus zealous when He uh, entered into the temple and He uh, came in storming? And, uh, of course, there, the animals went everywhere and He had His whips and, and uh, He had a zeal, though. A zeal for His Father. In the temple. Uh, he had a single-minded devotion. The negative is just simple, sinful envy. Envy, covetousness, that kind of thought. So we're going to be uh, thinking of the attribute of God here. That, that That's a positive jealousy. And we do actually see it all throughout the Bible. Uh, especially in the Old Testament where you will see um, God is jealous for His people Israel. He was jealous for them. They were unfaithful. But he remained faithful. And uh, his promises are still there. But the whole point is this. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. He is jealous dealing with our affections, our desires, our wealth, our non-wealth, our pursuits, our careers, our relationships, Name every part and every aspect in your life, and God is jealous about it for you. You know, it's just give me Jesus, right? Don't you can have the world, but give me Jesus. And that song probably was put in the list for that. Would would that be the case, or am I over reading that? It, it, you just like the song, okay? All right. Well, it works because that was a good way to lead into where we're at here. We're do it every week. <laughs> there we go. Because <laughs> it always fits. It's always right. Yeah, that's right. So, but it, it definitely works into this one too. Uh, one of the most definitive and decisive statements in in all of Scripture um, is found here in our verse four that we're going to be dealing with today, James four. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Friendship with the world. Friends of the world, right? They can have it. Right? Uh, If we are friends of the world, we are what? Enemies of God. One or the other. It's one, one or the other. And that's what James is putting forth there. I think it's rather foreboding here. (laughs) I think it's rather frightening in a sense. Very bold. It's a serious thought here to be the enemies of God. Uh, An enemy of God is not a believer. I will tell you that right now. God and all of His people are not enemies. We were once enemies, Romans chapter 5 says, right? We were once enemies of God. But now we are friends of God. Um, God... Whenever he sees man as an enemy, he's an enemy to be judged and he's an enemy to be destroyed. 
And so when we, we think of that, we start getting into the aspect of the jealousy of God. He wants His people to not be worldly, to be doing the things of the world. He's jealous for us. This is a good thing for us. So we look at the context now, the very setting uh, that we've been looking at in James. James is confronting the aspect of conflicts. We looked at that last week, right? The first uh, three verses. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Uh, They had fighting, infighting in the church. (laughs) And it it was despicable. But he says, where does that come from? And it comes from each individual and it comes from in here is what he's saying. There's a war there. We have an absolute war going on. And so the conflict was in the church. The early church had that. Everybody says, oh, let's go back and do what the early church did. Well, we sure are. We, we, we look like the early church in a lot of aspects. They were at war. Uh, there was jealousy. There was selfish ambition at that time. And chapter 3, verse 14 and 16 mentions that. We've looked at that. And so we stay in context with where we've been and where we're at now and where we're going. The source of the conflict was selfishness. So we dealt with that last week a lot, didn't we? It just comes down to our selfishness. You don't look at anybody else. You just look at yourself and you can see all sorts of selfishness. It's just there. And we battle it all the time. We want to resolve these kind of conflicts. And that's what James is desiring here. And for those people to repent of their selfishness. And he wants them to be humbled before God. And we're leading into that. We won't get to that today unless we get snowed in more and we don't have any place to go and we'll just keep on going. Um, I'd rather save that for next week, though. Since He is faithful to us, He certainly wants us to be faithful to Him. So this is dealing with our relationship with God as we look at it today. Last week it was dealing with conflict with others. Conflict, especially in, in the church, you know. And the selfishness is involved. And now He says, let's look at the relationship with God. Let's let's look at there and let's let's see where it's at. So let's all stand. Let's pick up the Bible. Let's do one of our favorite things. That's to open up the Bible and to be able to read what's there, right? And see what God has to say to each one of us. This is written for you. I'm telling you, this is personal, folks. Don't take it personally. You've heard of that. Well, take this personally. All right, James four verse four. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the word world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. We take it to be absolute truth from You. And You're speaking to us today, even though it was written 2,000 years ago by the hand of James. It was really written by Your Holy Spirit and intended for us even right now at this very moment. May we each one take this very seriously and that we would die daily to self, die daily to the world. Of course, the enemy, Satan also. And we see those enemies even in our text and uh, that we've been looking at and, and are going. And Lord, help us as we battle. Help us to be strong.
strong and to be able to take Your Word and Your Spirit and to make more changes in our life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, verse 4, James doesn't beat around the bush. He just comes right out and says it. He starts this section off, I think, with a very abrupt language. All along, he's been saying, brethren, but he doesn't hold back. James doesn't hold back. That's because the Holy Spirit wanted him to write very uh, abrupt. He calls some of his readers here adulteresses. It's not a very nice term. Uh, That ought to get someone's attention, shouldn't it? You know, you adulteresses. It sounds like, you know, when Jesus would call them, you hypocrites, right? So I think it's obvious that James really never had the opportunity to attend Robert Schuller's Institute for Church Growth. I think if he had gone there, he would never have written this shocking word here in our text, adulteresses. He would have learned that the church needs to be seeker-friendly. You know, you you don't want to attract uh, people in as seekers and then call them adulteresses, right? You want to attract these seeker-sensitive people. So you should never say anything from the pulpit that might offend or confront someone. Well, you might as well just get rid of the Bible because it's always confronting us, isn't it? it because we don't have it together yet. And uh, anyway, there are offensive terms in here, but if one is spiritual, they'll desire to be changed. So we know that a seeker... Um, is uh, definitely can be sensitive, but the thing is, he's got a problem, and the problem is called sin. We have to attack it. Uh, if you want to attract customers, uh, excuse me, seekers, uh, you've got to give them what they want. <laughs> Whatever they want, right? So we want to make them feel comfortable and feel good. And when a seeker comes to uh, church, he wants to hear upbeat stories. He wants to be encouraged. He wants to feel good about himself and build his self-esteem. And the last thing he wants to be called is a spiritual adulteress. (laughs) Clearly, James could have used a seminar on how to build a seeker church. So why did James use this language? I think that might be our case too. Maybe we need to go to a seminar to get more people in here and be seeker-sensitive to people. (laughs) You guys understand what I'm saying, right? God is the husband. God has His people. And His people would be considered his wife. And throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel as a picture of his wife. He's married to um, Israel. He sees his people as being married to him. He's the husband. Israel is the wife. If you turn, well, Isaiah 54.5, I'm just going to read it quickly, but Isaiah 54.5, we've been doing Isaiah in our uh, Tuesday nights, and we just covered this pretty recently. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Now, who else could say that? For your husband is your maker. Your husband made you. <laughs> and, uh, of course, he took Israel then out of all the nations to be uh, his wife. Israel is his wife. In the Old Testament, Israel is unfaithful throughout the Old Testament turns to idolatry and it's like severing uh, her relationship with her husband as she goes after other lovers other idols other nations for support this is called spiritual adultery so when he starts off with that word adulteresses you can see what James is thinking of because I think James borrowed a lot from the Old Testament as we've been going through 
these first four chapters. You've probably seen it quite frequently, haven't you? And of course, a lot from the Proverbs, but um, all throughout the Old Testament, some of the same kind of thoughts. Um, and so we know this is spiritual adultery. He's not talking here about a marital unfaithfulness in this text. It's a spiritual matter. Uh, and that is what's so frequently seen. In many passages, God accuses Israel in graphic language about the spiritual adultery, how unfaithful Israel was, the covenant that He had made with them. It was broken by them, of course, almost immediately. I have to think of Hosea. The whole book of Hosea is uh, a lesson on this. Hosea is the prophet. God asks him, tells him to do something that is rather remarkable. And I'm glad he didn't ask any of us to do what he asked Hosea to do. Uh, she's a harlot. He marries her. Then she goes after other men. And uh, she is like a prostitute. And of course, they all take advantage of her. And then she winds up in slavery. And God then tells Hosea to go back and buy her out to redeem her out of her slavery position and all the prostitution and adultery that she did and to take her again as his wife. Is that an incredible thought coming from God? Who could do that? Only in the power of God, in obedience, would one want to do that. It's not a natural thing, is it? Uh, so, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 uh, he commands a prophet to marry the prostitute Gomer in those three chapters. That's what uh, we see. Um, she bears him children. And they take on names like dealing with unfaithfulness. Hosea continues to support. And she thought it came from her lovers. Hosea 2.5 and 2.8. So, like we say, uh, that's, this is like God buying us out of the wicked bondage that we were in. We were adulteresses. I didn't really know it. We wouldn't have said that. We were were idolaters. We worshipped ourselves, the things we were after, or we worshipped the right God in the wrong way, or the wrong God in, in a wrong way. What a picture of God's love for him to come back and take her out of that. A wayward people. Look in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Jeremiah 3, verse 8. Jeremiah had a lot to tell his people. They were faithless. God tells him, go to them and tell them about it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel. There's the word adultery, right? Faithless Israel. I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. What's he saying? Well, in our study in Isaiah, we find out that the ten tribes, God divorced them. But the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who turned out to be just as wicked, he will continue to uh, go after them. Of course, some people out of the ten tribes went down south to the Judah and Benjamin. And God did later uh, judge the two tribes. 
at first he judged Israel, the ten tribes, by Assyria. And then, like a hundred years later, he judges the two tribes by bringing on Babylon. And that empire uh, extended all over the known world and Israel was then taken captive by them. Um, But he didn't divorce them. He never divorced Judah and Benjamin. And the rest of the tribes, there were people that came into there. God had a covenant promise with them and He will always keep it. It's an everlasting covenant. Just like we get to get in on that covenant and we're part of the covenant, right? So He is faithful to the elect out of Israel. And that nation and nations will get the blessings and promises that God had all said. If you look in Ezekiel, and that's not far from Jeremiah, is it? Ezekiel 16, verse 32. She was called an adulteress, right? Right? And 16:32, following the same kind of thought, you adulterous wife, speaking to Israel here, who takes strangers instead of her husband. There's the spiritual idolatry, the the spiritual adulteress here. And uh, that's what he's appealing to. Now let's go to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. Isaiah used that same kind of thought. Just go back a couple of books. Past Jeremiah again. And Isaiah 50, verse 1. Again, these are pretty present for you, the ones who have done the Tuesday night study. This will sound very familiar. Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? The mother being the ten tribes, the divorce. He says, where's your divorce? Or to whom my creditors did I sell you before you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was sent away? There's the certificate of divorce. A divorce. That God had there in that in the judgment, and so we get the idea that there is an adulteress here, and the adulteress is Israel. And then we go to chapter fifty-seven, verse three. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Does that sound like a familiar Tuesday night Bible study? that sound familiar? We were there, right there. Uh, Come here, you sons of a sorceress. Wow. Offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. The children had been handed on down. They they were... um, It was like their parents and their parents' parents and parents all the way back. They were adulteresses. And this generation was the same thing as he spoke to them. And... uh, there again, uh, we, we get the adulterous thing. That's quite a theme running through the Old Testament, isn't it? James here mentions that oh, Jesus, whenever He came on the scene and He was walking in uh, Jerusalem, walking all over Israel, he, he would run into Pharisees who were the leaders of Israel. They were representing the same people that went back to the time of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They hadn't changed, had they? And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says, as He addresses scribes and Pharisees, He answered and said to them, An evil 
an adulterous generation craves for a sign. And no, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. The resurrection of Christ. As he had been in the belly three days, three nights, he explains it there. He quotes it in verse 40. What does he call them? An adulterous generation. Basically, the whole nation did not receive Christ. And look at these guys that should have known better. The Pharisees, they knew the law. They taught the law. They had it memorized. And yet he calls them, this is an evil. Believe me, believers are never considered evil by God and they are not considered adulteresses. So in our text in James, it can be taken two ways. I think, first of all, it's really a warning to unbelievers for the most part. If you look at that aspect and just look in that text and calling adulteresses. But can unbelievers be unfaithful? Yeah, certainly can. We do sin. We battle. There can be some pretty bad sins. Uh, not to give credence to do that, but the fact of the matter is, so we, you know, even as Christians, we can see this in a sense of the adulteress, but we're really not that, uh, even though there are times where we are unfaithful. I think it's a good warning as we go back and look at the Old Testament. I don't want to be like those people of Israel, but we so easily can be. They had the, the Word of God. They weren't pagans. We have the Word of God, and ever before us, right? Even more so. Chapter 8 of Mark, Mark eight thirty-eight. Again, this is Jesus. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. If you're ashamed of me, and, and, and most people were, and, and so he's calling them adulterers. He's calling them sinful. So the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now this is the nice, loving Jesus that we all know. And at the same time, He is serious about sin. He wants people to know they are sinners. What would happen if these people go around saying, yeah, but we never want to use that term and I don't want to make any judgments on people. We just want to make people feel we're welcome here and everything. What do they think of this Jesus who they love so much, they adore so much, and then He comes and says something like this. You know? Talking about Jesus. <laughs> he had a bad day. Well, when these guys come on, <laughs> they were a bad group of people that came along through there, and he was giving them quite the warning, wasn't he? Uh, he's talking about judgment here, the glory of the Father, right? And the holy angels coming. He's talking about cost of discipleship. That's what this is all dealing with. In um, starting in verse 34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." Pretty rugged. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Remember the world thing? That's what we're getting into. So remember that verse, and we don't have to come back to this verse then. Right, okay? (laughs) For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. That was back at that time. Do you think that this is an adulterous and sinful generation that we live in? 
Oh yeah. If they were then, we certainly are today, right? Jesus' statements. Rather tough. They're hard sayings. But this is our Christ that we love. How about the, what what are Paul's thoughts on God as the husband? My, we spent a long time on this God, the husband, and, and the wife. We saw that in the Old Testament. Then we see Jesus. Well, how about later on in the New Testament? Well, you see in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, and look at the warning here that Paul gives. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. And he has the same theme going on. For I am jealous. There's our word here. You're going to see how the word jealous is going to fit in with this whole idea of adulteress and worldly. For I am jealous for you. Remember we were talking about we can be jealous for people. With a godly jealousy. There we go. There's a good term in jealousy. For I betroth you. I brought the word to you. I betroth you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Who's he writing to? The Corinthians. Well, in one sense, they were adulterers. You know, I mean, there were every chapter there was problems that they had to deal with in that church. I mean, it's despicable. Some of the things that they were still doing as Christians, or some of them aren't Christians and aren't imposing as that way, but uh, there he, he, he says, I betrothed you. There's one husband and he's saying... It's almost like you're going out for you know another husband here. Uh, Ephesians five. Everybody's familiar with the Ephesians passage. Uh, we'll we'll hit on it anyway. Ephesians five is dealing with uh, the church is the bride of Christ, right? And uh, very familiar with us. Uh, Twenty two wives be subject to your own husbands and gives the reason why and. Uh, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to give themselves up, to sacrifice themselves to their own wives. That's the idea of the agape there, right? as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. And here we go. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. It's a man going to a woman, right? Shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Husband, wife, man, woman. Right in Genesis, right from the very outset. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Boy, that's a beautiful reference there, isn't it? We can see Christ and His relationship with us as we see relationships with husband and wife. That would behoove the husbands to make sure that they love the wife in a sacrificial way. Anyway... um, Verse 33, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And his wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So now we're getting in family and marriage and stuff while we're talking about jealousy. (laughs) But Paul is bringing on the aspect of we now are married to Christ. And He is jealous for us if we go out for things of the world and things that don't really 
include Him and His glory. Uh, Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it's the marriage supper of the Lamb because of time. I'm just going to kind of move on. But you you know what that one's about there, right? That's what we look forward to. We're the bride. He's the bridegroom. The idea is loyalty here. Uh, when there's spiritual adultery, loyalty has been broken. Um, husband, wife, God, His people. What happens is that we belong to Jesus Christ and we are united to Him. We were baptized into Christ without water. When we did the water, we showed that we were demonstrated it, but we were actually placed into, immersed into Christ. United to Him. We were woven, I want you to catch this, we were woven into the very fabric of the Godhead. Woven into Him. Baptized into Christ. That means all my future, all my money, all my hopes, all my dreams, everything, my family, whatever it is, whatever I put my mind into, the fact of the matter is is that everything belongs to Him because I have been placed into Christ. All my interest and everything that I have desires for, hopefully it's desires that He's put into because that's why we pray. We want His will to be done. And so if we're doing His will, then the desires that we have are good. And so we're placed into Him. Everything belongs to Him. Whenever we engage in any kind of activity, whenever we have any kind of attitudes, did you know that's affecting Him? The relationship is there. If it's not to glorify God, then what it is, it's it's an act of spiritual adultery. That's what's happening when we disobey God, when we're disobedient, when we're not doing His will. And um, I have no right to determine where I belong apart from where my Lord says I belong. I have no right to behave in any way that would be different than the way the Lord tells me how to behave. And this is based on the fact that we are friends of God. See, when we're friends of God, we want to do everything for Him because He's the one that first loved us, and so therefore we love Him. He chose us. We didn't have a thing to do with Him coming to us, and it wasn't our minds, and wasn't our intelligence. He chose us to be adopted into the family of God. He chose us when we were wicked sinners, enemy sinners, as Romans 5 says. So, And now He puts us on the level of being friends. And He puts us on the level of being a wife. Adopted children. How many different ways does He show us what our relationship is with uh, him and then he said that we're united with him, placed into him. This is just amazing wonder. I, I cannot grasp the whole aspect of what that means. I, I I can only get just the tip of the iceberg of even that. What does that mean? Wow, to be that kind of related and united to our Savior Christ is just incredible. Now that's the adulterous theme. And now we get to the friendship with the world. We're still in verse 4. We talked about adulteresses. That's the word that we went on, so we'll go to the next phrase. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? You know, James says, don't you know this? 
Evidently, there were some really rotten things going on in the, some of the churches that he wrote. It's not one special church. It's the, all the churches just kind of spread out all over. Uh, and so, there, there we go. I mean, you know, he's hitting the, the Christians right where they need to be hit. And he's saying, hey, take your pick. Are you married to God or are you married to the world? Wow, James. Uh, can you imagine a couple gets married and a month later, the husband tells his wife, hey, I'm going out tonight and I'm going to go out with my old girlfriend. You know, don't take it personally because I still love you and I love you the most, but you know, I just want to keep in touch with her too. You know, and, and so I'll go out with her. Um, that marriage is in real big trouble, right? And you know what? You've probably heard of people doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that... Uh, is what is happening when we do something that is out of God's will. Um, in marriage, there's a vow that's taken to forsake all others, right? And when we have a covenant with God, that's the same thing. We don't get into any other kind of idolatry, uh, the things that we want to do outside of His uh, will. Um, when we come to Christ as Savior, when He brings us to Him, we say, goodbye world. Just give me Jesus. Right? There's our theme, our, our theme song today, right? Just give me Jesus. Um, goodbye, world. I, I don't want anything with you. You know, I spent a lot of hours running with you. I don't want it anymore. I don't need it. I don't want it. It's, it's, it's not who I am anymore. You, you, can't bring, um, you can't bring that world into our marriage with Christ, can we? Whew. Boy, James. Um, Jesus said, I, says... I, I'm not going to have any rivals. No rivals here. You're either friends with the world or you're friends with me. Which do you want? <laughs> Boy, rather, uh, rather pointed, isn't it? I think that could be frightening if you considered yourself to be an enemy. right? I don't think we'd ever want to do that. Uh, how frightening it is. I mean, I don't think there's any question. I want to be a friend of the world. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? You know, I don't want to be a friend with the world. I want to be a friend with God. Okay, what's going on? The world means living to please yourself apart from God. Chief end of man is to glorify God. That means the chief end. Everything that is part of our lives is to glorify God. Good question to always ask, right? Um, we can also, though, live to find pleasure in God Himself. And this is rather remarkable. God wants us to have pleasure. The kind of pleasure that He speaks of in the Old Testament so much. And it's the kind of pleasure that is taking pleasure in who He is and the things that He's given you and the things you do. It's because you are walking with Him. And we are. He's pleased when we enjoy Him. God is most you know, glorified, right? When we are most satisfied in Him. I'm still borrowing that from Piper. I almost want to call it my own. <laughs> Friendship. The word there is philia. Now, that's related to uh, other terms. Uh, you can think of also, um, well, our term Philadelphia, Right? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Um, 
philia here is an emotional kind of love. It's an affectionate kind of love. It's a, a love for one that would have for a friend. Friendship of the world. This kind of love here. But, and usually you see the love that comes from God is what? Agape. But there are times when God actually fillets us. <laughs> the, the word does that, doesn't it? <laughs> With a sharp sword, right? <laughs> and a two-edged sword. Matthew six five. There are times when he uses this word, and I, you know, I don't usually think of it that way. I usually think of the agape word, and, and I think all of us are that way. But in Matthew six five, and you can see what this would be about. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Uh, I mean, they're a, they're emotional about it. They're affectionate about it. They they love to do that. Hey. I love to play baseball, right? Uh, you know, I don't have that same kind of love I have for my wife. It's a different, you know, I really, I really like to do that. I love that. You know, we always say that term there. Well, here, that's what's used here. They just love to stand there and make themselves look religious, right? And uh, that's the uh, idea. That's the same word there. And while we're in Matthew, turn to chapter 10, verse 37. Uh, philia is the word that we're looking at, and uh, it's the word love. Chapter 10, verse 37. It can be a very good term. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh boy, we're getting into the take up the cross. Follow me again, are we? Uh, kind of goes along with the theme, though, doesn't it? Uh, to love father or mother. This is an affectionate term, uh, an emotional kind of love. It, it, you know, it's a real love. And so he uses it there. We look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. Philia is used again. If I don't get done today, we can blame it on the snow. Yeah. I don't know, we started, uh, what? Five minutes late. <laughs> we probably weren't any later than what we usually are. If anyone does not love the Lord, that's the word philia there. You'd think agape, right? If anyone does not philia the Lord, he is to be accused. Of course, one way that you'd show that you love the Lord, Maranatha, come, you know. Um, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. So it's philia there. To have an affection for him. Look in John chapter 5, verse 20, and I might be really hitting this really hard, but it, it's just kind of interesting. Usually you don't, you don't see this word that much, but actually we're running into it a little bit more than we thought. For the Father loves the Son. Huh. Now that's interesting. Wouldn't you think that'd be agape? I would have. And I'd just be reading through here and I would just automatically say, unless you had a Greek New Testament, for the Father philia is the Son. Okay? Boy, I hope I got this one right. Because it, it seems like it, it'd be agape there. But there again, he has an affection for him. So I can get a lot of other scriptures, but I, I think I'll, I'll hold with that. Um, except for John 15. He, he has the disciples, he calls them friends. <laughs> And in John 15, verse um, 13 through 19, it says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And all the way through uh, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. We see the idea of His choosing and us not choosing. Disciples us to 
Um, verse 17, This I command you, that you love one another. There we go. Interesting. Now, go back to James. You get the idea? Don't have that kind of relationship, the affectionate, emotional kind of, the, the stuff that you really hang on to, you really like. Yeah. That kind of friendship. Uh, he says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world. See the word wishes? It's actually the word will, wills, bulamai. You heard of that word before? And it, it means to choose one thing over another. That's uh, not necessarily dealing with us choosing our salvation here, but it does get the sense, hey, there it is. You, you want friendship with the world or do you want, do you want God? So if you wish to be a friend of the world, if you're choosing to be a friend of the world, what you're doing really is that you're showing you are an enemy of God. You're not a believer. So you have to read that text and we have to treat the text fairly and not read everything into it you know, without first saying, here's what the real meaning is. He's showing if, if you think you love God but yet you really love the world, I want to tell you something, you're an enemy of God. Wow. I think that's saying that you've just shown that you're not a believer. You know, you, you don't belong to God. And the word world, the friendship of the world, we run into this so often. It's cosmos. It's the man-centered, Satan-inspired system of the present age. Right? It's, it's the system that's going on. And, and we don't have to explain that too much. When I think of worldliness, I can think of Las Vegas and one little picture there where you have people uh, drinking and all the sex shows that they have going on. There's gambling in every hotel and restaurant. and People don't even feel guilty there. They just show it outwardly. And you have um, people doing things there that they would never do anywhere else. And you have, my goodness, you can go out to any hour of the night and you can find grandmas from Kansas playing the slot machines. <laughs> and this is the essence of the world, you know. And, you know, we've been hearing all about what all the, what is a billion and a half dollars out there now, you know. I'm just tired of hearing it. It's just constant. I guess somebody finally wanted or, But the outward trappings of the world. At, at the heart of, of Las Vegas is all the glitz that's there. People seeking pleasure. It's not from God. And, of course, people get drunk because they're wanting some kind of a good feeling. They want to escape from the problems of the world and they want to feel good, so they do that. But it's outside of the pleasure of God to be drunk is a sin. To engage in sex outside of marriage. That's to seek pleasure apart from God. To gamble is not only to be a bad steward of the money, God entrusted you with that. He entrusts you to do what that is. And so it's it's having it's wanting more money that you didn't really work for and you've got coveting involved there. And we can go through all of that. We could take a whole message out of that. But gambling is a sin. It's wanting something that's not yours. Doesn't belong to you and you're wanting something uh, just on the side there. Yeah, you say, well, I could I could use it to to build a new church. <laughs> I was thinking of that. I said, well, boy, we could get ourselves a new church. Build it and they will come. <laughs> yes, even I thought, huh, boy, you know, what would I do with all that? The things of the world out there. Well, that caught all the attention and fancy. Uh, it's greed. Greed. 
It's and as a matter of fact, you go to Colossians three five, you'll find out that greed is mentioned along with idolatry. See, these are the things that start hacking away at us. You know, the things that the world is doing out there. It's okay, you know, and go out and I'm going to spend a couple of bucks on that. You know, it's no big deal. But you want to see how many lives have been ruined by that? Oh boy, you could go deep into that. It's it's just like uh, all that other stuff that's out there. Uh, you know, just it's seeking some kind of pleasure that really doesn't belong to you. Um, and John Piper said the Bible is not against us having pleasure, but it's against us finding pleasure in the wrong things or in the wrong ways. Knowing God is the ultimate pleasure. Psalm sixteen eleven. Check this out. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You want to find out the real treasure? You want to find out what the real pleasure is? Going after Him. Seeking after Him. Presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you delight yourself in Him, you know what? It's not wrong to have desires. All of a sudden, that word becomes a good word. Because now you know the desires are His. You can say, I just want God's will. And if you're in His will, you're doing, and you've got these desires, hey, God gave me this uh, thing that I do, and I like to do it, I enjoy it. Fantastic. God gave it to you, use it for God. Use it for His glory. And you know what? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Guess where that desire came from? Ha! Boy, the world. The world's an evil system. Um, it offers us pleasures that are apart from God. But we know that true eternal pleasures is only found in God. He has the fountain of the living waters, doesn't He? Do you remember the passage? For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friendship with the world means trying to satisfy your thirst outside of the fountain that God has given of living water which satisfies the soul. And so people go after the dirty, filthy water. The worldliness. And they don't know that that there is sparkling, clear, living water that is there. And so we go after different water. It's a spiritual adultery. And then he says in in our James passage, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, also in the verse 4, hostility toward God. Hostile enemies of God. Hostile enemies. Isaiah 42.13 Sometimes I get all these passages down. I have them on your outlines. Then I have to go back through them because I know if I read all these verses, we'll never ever get through there. It'll take two hours. So I come back and start underlining what I think are the best ones. And that's really hard to do. It's making judgments, you know. <laughs> Wait, I, I like this one. No, 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 this is better. Isaiah 42.13. Maybe this will help us. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal, His jealousy, His zealousy, 
Like a man of war, he will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. If you trust in Christ, he's not going to prevail against you. That was done at the cross. Right? Our sins were taken away there. Hostile enemies. Uh, of course, I, I've been referring to Romans 5.10 if you wanted to, to go there, but isn't it uh, remarkable how a Christian can walk into the enemy camp when God has gone at lengths to make us friends of Him and we, it's just like we just kind of walk into the enemy camp. It's like breaking a marriage vow. Uh, it's like a fracture. So we are to be His alone. He belong, we belong to Him alone. Then we get into verse 5 finally. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. <laughs> this verse, if you've been reading along, you'll find, I don't quite get this one. Well, you, you would be like the way that I am now and the way I have been all week as I went through this. I will tell you, if you don't feel like you understand it very good, don't feel left alone because many commentators say this is the hardest verse in the book of James to interpret. And we're talking about very good expositors. And one even said, this is the hardest verse to interpret in the whole Bible. Now, I don't know if I'd go at that length, but... Um, I would say wherever you happen to be at the time, you know, you, you often hear me say this is the best verse. That's <laughs> where I'm at. You know, um, why is he jealous? Just a couple of questions. Why is he jealous? We know what we're talking about when we say jealous. Why is he jealous? Well, he's jealous for the worship of his people because he is alone, the true and living God, and he knows everything else is false. And he knows it's not good for us. He wants the best for us. He has exclusive rights to worship. He doesn't want us to worship anything else. He, you know, he wants the service of his own people. And, you know, you think of uh, there's been an actual marriage, there's been a covenant that's happening. And uh, we know that he passionately wants to protect us. He has a zeal for a love relationship that he has. So his jealousy is not a bad thing. It is really, really good. You know, he's to be jealous of our love. If we put our love and our affections and tensions on something else, it's like, you know, uh, he, he's jealous of that uh, about us. Some scholars, like I say, call this a real difficult verse. Uh, King James, uh, I think even the NIV, translates the verse, the Spirit, and that that's a little S there, little Spirit, S Spirit, which He has made to dwell in us lust with envy. And I think that's a pretty interesting translation there. And it could very well be right. We don't know whether that's to be capitalized or not capitalized. So what are we going to do with this? We're going to skip it? No, because we have to go into this. Whoops, about out of time. (laughs) For one thing, that could be, you know, the spirit that we have, and not, not speaking of the Holy Spirit here, because it, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It could. Um, in my NAS, it is capitalized with Spirit, S. So that would mean the Holy Spirit. So there's a good translation too. But if you took your, let's say King James, just for uh, looking at it, he puts his Spirit into us, all right? 
He desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. He wants it to be done the way that He wants it. So He's jealous in what He has put into us, or the Spirit that we have in us is sinful, right? Uh, like an unbeliever, you know, before we came to Christ, there was a spirit aspect in of us that lusted with envy. Right? And uh, anyway, and then you don't have capital letters. So you have all sorts of different things it could be. He jealously desires of the Holy Spirit He is made to dwell in us. It could be that way. If you want to capitalize the S and then it being the Holy Spirit, uh, He desires that the Holy Spirit would be controlling us. A variation of that. The Spirit takes to the human spirit, not to the Holy Spirit. It has no references to the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's referring to God's holy jealousy for His people. And when it really comes down to that, despite the fact that it seems like it's really muddy and, and hard to understand, and, and especially with our translations, they all come down to this. And I think Douglas Moo was even saying, he's looking at the Greek grammar and the context, and he's saying he's warning against spiritual adultery. <laughs> hey, what do you think of that? Is that pretty good? And he's jealous whenever we go after anything else. He has a holy jealousy for His people and whatever spirit they have in them, that He wants it to honor Him. And when they don't, see how it fits into the context now, when they don't, you know, He, he, he desires us to, to be obeying. He, so He's referring to God's holy jealousy as a husband. He wants us to be faithful. And that would fit in with the text, right? So you read that verse 5 over and over and over. It says, what is, He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made dwell in us. You know, and then you try to put that into a thought. So it could be one of two or three things that we just mentioned. But when it's all said and done, it they really don't have that much of a variation. And reading context like we like to do, there's no problem. What is jealousy in the Old Testament? It means to become darkened. Um, it, to, to be dark red is the idea. Uh, jealousy in the New Testament actually is dealing with thumos, uh, thuma, you know, uh, you even think of thermos, right? But um, to boil over, to boil over with jealousy. In many places, God's jealousy is seen as waxing hot. Yeah, yeah, jealous to the point of uh, judgment. Deuteronomy says that His jealousy is a consuming fire. Wow. What caused God to be jealous? What provokes Him to be jealous? We know why He's jealous, right? We just said that because He wants us to worship Him and Him only and not to have any kind of idols. What provokes Him to jealousy then? Ezekiel 16, God depicts Israel as His adulterous wife. We went to that text earlier. Um, She was lined up with idols and idol worshippers from Canaan, from Egypt, from Assyria. He pronounces a sentence. And Ezekiel 16 says, I will judge you as women who break wedlock and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. So, uh, it's the idolatry. Uh, He's not just jealous for the worship of His people, but... It's, you know, he wants the well-being of his people. He really cares. He wants them to have the best. You know, um, there's a selfless jealousy. It's outside of ourselves. God knows that we'll be secure with Him. He knows that we won't be secure without Him. 
And uh, his jealousy is not for him. Who's his jealousy for? For us. For our best welfare. The jealousy of God. Um, about at the close here. Matter of fact, I'm not even going to hit verse 6, and it runs right so good with verse 5, because it talks about grace, and I'll just mention that just enough, that the only way that we can really realize and be able to beat the enemy is realizing it's the grace of God. For we have nothing in and of ourselves to do any of this, to obey, to fight, to win the battles. You know, God is demanding that we do this, and yet He equips us so that we can. And to the ones who are His, they're humble. And they are the one who, ones who are given grace. Um, the lovers of the world, they parade a certain kind of outward belief in God, possibly. Uh, they can even attach themselves to the church. The affections towards the world, though, really lean that way. And the thing is, is that they probably really haven't been graced, have they? They have to have the grace of God. We're saved by grace, right? Um, they, they're called to repent. God has a communicable attribute. God will have attributes. They're incommunicable. This particular one, jealousy, is actually communicable. That means we too can have this attribute, a godly jealousy as Paul had a godly jealousy for the Corinthians. And uh, you remember the ones at uh, Laodicea? Um, We think of uh, neither hot nor cold. He says, be zealous. Zealous, jealous, very close, same kind of meaning. Be zealous and what? Repent. I'm I'm finished here. You know... uh, it comes down to we, we want to get rid of the idols. And those idols are always going to battle us. By the grace of God, it can be done. Grace of God. He saved us and He sanctifies us. And He will ultimately glorify us with that great grace. And so, as James has beat us up pretty good this morning, I had to finish on that note with grace because that gives us the ultimate answer of how we do this because in our flesh we can just try it so much and beat things down and it comes up over here and beat that down and it'll be an endless battle and we'll feel just whipped and defeated. And you look at the grace of God and say, this is how I've gotten where I've gotten and this is how I'm going to get where I get and it's all by His glorious, amazing grace. Thank you guys for coming out this morning. And uh, we'll just close with this closing prayer. Um, we're not going to have Lord's Supper this morning and uh, because I took up a lot of time. And uh, uh, it's a little bit different today. You know, this, uh, the deal with the weather and everything. And we still come out and have a, um, a joyous time in our glorious Lord. Do you, do you seek pleasure in Him in worshiping? Let's pray. Father, holy, awesome God. May we have a higher view of You this morning than we did before as we think about Your jealousy. And Your jealousy is for us. It's for our good because You know those other things that we play around with, Lord, are not good for us and it hurts us. 
And you really do care. You have a zeal for us. My Lord, you are incredible. Thank you for your great grace. Lord, forgive us where we so often battle against sin and and we lose some battles. Yet, your Holy Spirit is in us. You're jealous for us. And you want to see us win. And you give us all the power that we ever need to be able to defeat sin. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to drive out of our driveways and drive right here to church and to be able to come in and sit in a warm place and to worship you is what it's all about. To you, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Go back and um, friendly uh, use a friendly way of welcoming in our visitors. Thank you guys for coming again. And like I always say, boy, you uh, would be welcome to come back here again. We would love to, to see you. Thank you very much. Have a good rest of the day. Praise the Lord.